Hi, I'm Emily and this is Ambition Feed, the podcast that brings you honest conversations from school leaders. This month we're tackling the challenge of pupil wellbeing at our offices in London with two leaders from the South West. Julie, Tim, welcome to Ambition Feed. Thanks. Good morning. Hi. Could you introduce yourselves please? I'm Julie Hunter. I've been a teacher for nearly 20 years. Um, my current role is Deputy Head Teacher for Culture and Wellbeing at Aureus, but I started my um, teaching career as a languages teacher and have been on a professional learning journey over 20 years. Hi, um, my name's Dr Tim Cook. I'm head at Lisgard Hillfort Primary currently. I've also been teaching for near enough 20 years. I started off in secondary, uh, secondary English, have taught across primary, secondary, um, alternative and secure custodial. Could you tell us a little bit about your school's context um, and your role in terms of people wellbeing? Well, my role obviously as, as a head, as a principal, is around establishing vision and then ensuring that that happens basically. So in a context around rural deprivation, around a school that certainly two or three years ago um, had its challenges and uh, you know it might have been a category at that point. What we're determined to do is, is improve the outcomes and improve the life experiences for the children that we serve and many of whom are very vulnerable. My school's a brand new school, it's only been open since September so it's 200 plus days old. My role as Deputy Head Teacher for Culture and Wellbeing is creating an ethos and culture where students can flourish, grow as well as learn. Our tagline is nurturing hearts and minds and it's very much making sure that students have 21st century wellbeing skills as well as academic results. Can you define um, 21st century wellbeing skills? What do you mean by that? So growing up kind of as the child of 70s and 80s without no World Wide Web, the students that we are educating at the moment are pioneers of a new frontier of digital living and actually they need to know how to navigate digital living as well as real life living. So for me, 21st century wellbeing skills is how do you navigate real life and digital life. Um, and for you Tim, how do you define wellbeing? Sure. Um, for me, what's really important is that children can come to school and that they feel safe and that they feel happy so that they can get on with the core business, if you like, which is they come to school to learn. Now, I think we all know, especially in areas around deprivation, around rural and coastal deprivation, that's not always the case. So schools have to work really hard around well-being to ensure that those kids do feel safe and happy. Um, and, and so that's the work that we're doing an awful lot of in school so that the learning of English, learning of maths and so on can happen effectively. How has your community near Aureus um, responded to the challenges that you face so far? We have opened the doors to explain to parents how we are looking after the wellbeing. We've run t taster sessions so that parents can come and hear the same language that students are hearing and doing mini sessions, so micro parent sessions, but also facilitating parent workshops when there's been a large need of special needs students with specific um, 
syndromes that need yeah. parenting support, facilitating. We have a massive building with lots of spare rooms, so we can easily facilitate a room with speakers and training. <laughs> but also setting ourselves up as a hub for the local area where schools are very tight for space. So we've set up a, a rural hub for mental health and wellbeing with psychiatrists and doctors visiting the school and training other teachers from other schools too. Tim, could you tell us a bit about how your community has responded? I think the kind of professional community in and around the school has, has responded magnificently. So we've um, had incredible support from a, an outstanding care home for folk with, with dementia. Um, and our children go down there and do some work with some of the folk there. That's found its way into parliamentary review. That's been fascinating. Um, around our in-residence community, where folk have volunteered their time to contribute, artists, um, uh, researchers, dancers in residence to bring kind of something really exciting and vibrant. I think around the Methodist church, where um, their church workers have come in, worked A, with the young people, worked B, um, with, with parents around counselling, around therapy, um, that response, I've only had to ask and, and it's really been pushing on an open door. I think around our parental community, um, that's an ongoing process. I think where we also open our doors. So, uh, for example, we've got a really big breakfast club um, and we just invite parents in for breakfast uh, for free, just recognising the, the negative impact of universal, um, universal credit. I think that sense of doing micro sessions um, around opening a cafe in our overly large front reception um, Father's Day, Mother Day type assemblies, but that building a culture takes a really long time. Um, so it's a process. Of the uh, different creative solutions that, that you have come up with, is there one that really stands out to you as being um, a really effective approach that you, you would like to share a little bit more about? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing for me to recognise is that a variety of approaches is absolutely necessary. I'm not ducking the question there, but people are very different and you kind of need to be like a golfer with, with lots of clubs in, in your bag to deal with the various shots. Um, but that said, what, what's fundamental is, is complete staff buy-in, everyone from the reception colleagues to the caretaking team, to the learning support team, to the teachers... Um, that, that approach to well-being needs to be universal. Um, our analysis of the children needs to be based not on kind of gut feel, that's important, but there are effective diagnostic tools out there. Some are free, SDQ questionnaires, strength difficulty questionnaires, some you have to pay for, bots or profiles, past data and so on. But that data is there to really kind of to map children's emotional profile in, in, in real kind of depth and then the thing that impacts is the therapeutic work the the therapies that go on around that so for some children getting access to the wave project in Newquay around surf therapy has been amazing 
for some children, the music therapist for other children, the play therapist. Some of this is free because we get it as part of kind of hosting trainee placements. And some of it, you know what, absolutely you have to pay for. And just for some children, just time with an adult who, you know, who cares is so profound. So there's not one thing, but that sense of we all buy in, we're all here for the children, we diagnose using really professional tools and then act seems a really sensible approach to me. I'm thinking, listening to Tim, we need a minibus to go and do some surf therapy, but it would take us a few hours to get to the sea. (laughs) At the moment, for me, what stands out is that we have a universal offer and that students start every day with a wellbeing approach. A lot of secondary schools start the day with a negative, you're in detention, you've done this wrong yesterday, and it's a negative vocabulary in the student's head to start their day. We start the day with our mindfulness approach, which is a universal core offer to all students. So we're being preemptive and proactive before there is an issue. So every single student in the building is being given this spy toolkit I say in my mindfulness strategies classes because no one needs to know when you're having a mindful wriggle of your toes. You can do that anywhere, anytime, in an exam hall. Um, you don't have to wait until you're at an acute chronic mental health need. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's about the proactive, preemptive approach mm-hmm. as a universal offer, then building further on that. We offer mindfulness to all the students as a core curriculum offer, but different mindfulness packages So some students say to me they don't really like mindfulness strategies, but they like mindful movement. Some students prefer mindful art. I can't wait for our music teacher to start next year when we introduce mindful music because I know when I do the odd mindful music session in mindful strategies that students sit up and they've been asking when can we start doing some music work. It's about not one size fits all. So as Tim was saying, it's that different toolkit but it's what's appropriate for the students. Instead of waiting for a chronic need, I think with the boom in mental health Mm. and wellbeing issues that we're seeing in young adolescents, the more proactive we can be, that has had the biggest impact. I mean, we've echoed that in a way. I mean, you've talked there about mindfulness. We introduced, because we knew that our children were basically getting themselves in trouble, low-level behaviours in the playground that uncontrolled, unsupervised time, not unsupervised, but you know what I mean, Um, breaks, lunches. So we've introduced, uh, we trained the teachers, we've introduced yoga for five to ten minutes after break and lunch. So we provide a whole bunch of activities at lunch, from Lego club to to dancing, um, as well as, you know, the standard activities. But then you come in and take a moment that's been really important in a way that I was a little bit sceptical about to begin with. Go on, doing a bit of stretching, that's all. No, so effective. I was wrong and it's wonderful to see. I think it's about that scepticism. Um, I was very sceptical about secondary school students using sand and puppets and mm. bubbles. But actually, I've seen 12-year-olds who are emotionally at the mm. age of 6 to 18 months because of the critical need that they didn't get as young children as schools we can't get them to learn until they're emotionally ready Mm. to learn 
So starting the day off thinking about, is this child in the space to learn, has been great to be able to do that from day one. Just the sheer range of different activities and different therapies between your schools is just staggering. It's so different to anything I experienced at school many, many years ago. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the impacts that you've seen day to day on your pupils, on, on their behaviour, on their performance and learning? What, what sort of things have you seen? I have a core student who I work with in our Thrive Room. Our Thrive Room is a bit like a beach hut. We have a Thrive Room. Yes. Um, and again, not many secondary schools have Thrive Rooms where we look at the emotional need of students. But this student was um, close to permanent exclusion. But there was that emotional need to mm. regress back through sand, play, mm. play with micro characters. And just for them to explore their own emotional landscape, the impact has meant that that student is still accessing normal schooling as opposed to being on a waiting list to move mm. to different schools. That's been a big impact. In fact, last night we had parents' evening. The year sevens had just done their first lot of secondary school exams and a little student said to me, he was so stressed in his exam, he knew that his brain had hidden the memory that he needed and he said he just did a fofbok which most people won't understand, is feet on floor, back on chair, breathe, have a moment, and then he was able to do the exam, and he surprised himself how well he had done. That was without someone saying, just calm down. He'd self-regulated, and he'd managed to thrive in an exam setting by himself. He'd learnt that little spy, spy toolkit he could take into the exam room, and that's in year seven. By the time he's in year 11, mm. that will become normalised behaviour. That's just one student in 200 days. How about you, Tim? Maybe if I approach it from the, from the sort of whole school perspective, um, you know, I've been at Hillfort for two and a half years now. Certainly when I came into the school, we had significant uh, issues around exclusion. You know, 35 exclusions in one year in a primary is not okay. So we've absolutely reduced that down to, uh, to two at this point this year. We've got significantly higher attendance than the Cornwall average and just scraping away at, at national. I think what you can see across those diagnostic tools is children enjoy coming to school more. That's certainly reflected in focus groups and questionnaires and so on. It's always a little bit difficult to track from improved esteem, improved resilience to, well, look, they got their key stage two outcomes. That's a difficult line to draw. But what we certainly know is that because our role has risen from 340 to just shy of 390, you know, in a couple of years, from the national publicity we're getting around therapeutic work in sort of professional journals and so on. We certainly know that children and parents are seeking us out across Cornwall, which brings with it its own challenges, as I'm sure you can imagine. But we have a whole bunch of children who would otherwise be excluded, would otherwise be missing in education. Um, we keep in school profoundly vulnerable um, children in and around SEMH provision, children with EHCP plans, children without EHCP plans, who would otherwise, um, as I sit here, I genuinely don't know where they would be.
Um, and I'm really proud of that. I think also, Tim, building on that further, the impact is mainstream schools can do a lot more, mm. should do a lot more, should. and actually prioritising student wellbeing does mean more students can be in mainstream mm. schools because in later life they're in mainstream community. Absolutely. So actually we need our moral purpose as leaders is to be building mainstream schools that cater for a wide variety of SEMH needs mm. as well as making sure that we maintain those students as opposed to going for permanent exclusions and also looking at why are attendance figures low? Mm. Is that there's an emotional need and what are we doing to fill that void instead of just saying actually the academic standards are low? Yeah, I mean we have children who only come in because they know that they will be safe and that they get to play with Toby the cat or Ralph the dog. There's no two ways about that. Also, those students with SEMH needs, we have a sensory room very few mm. secondary mainstream yeah. schools have sensory rooms and using that as a proactive approach that the students know they have a 15 minute sensory intervention yeah. to help them understand what overloads them. I think also we are, we are in a brand new building however we've repurposed some of the rooms. Mm. A room which was meant to be maybe an isolation room with no windows makes a perfect sensory room mm. because actually you're being proactive about behaviour. Those students who may well have had behaviour issues and been in a solitary room would benefit from some sensory interventions. How do you both feel that attitudes to well-being and mental health have changed during your time in education? About four years ago I was introduced to mindfulness in schools and was so enthusiastic and keen and went back to the head teacher and said this is something we have to do, we have to be proactive, there is a bubble of issues coming our way and we mm. need to do something and was told actually no the CPD needs to go into the new curriculum, it needs to go into new exams which made me feel quite deflated so I self-funded and I thought, I'm, I'm going to train myself on this because I think mm. it's really important. That was four years ago. I'm now in a school where the tagline is nurturing hearts and minds and well-being at the core of the school. And staff are being sent on training to be Thrive practitioners mm. and nurturing emotional needs. It feels like there is momentum. It's quite slow in certain areas. I do get a lot of visitors coming to our school to have mindfulness tours, to look mm. at the sensory yeah. room mm. and they pass comment that it feels like there is change however mm. it is quite slow and for me I would like to think that every school and every child in the country has leaders who are not feeling deflated and who are championing well-being mm. and have the courage to say actually we do need to put funding into training mm. staff. The government's latest paper did say there would need to be a champion mm on the school body, I think sta staff and leaders need to be proactive and say actually the government have already started to say this, we're not waiting until there's an Ofsted criteria measuring mm -hmm. it. So in the last four years I feel like I've come from people saying no that's a bit strange to people saying this is now a national priority and people are championing it. I, I certainly recognise that, you know, in fairness when Theresa May stood up in her very first speech as Prime Minister, 
you know, standing outside number 10, she talked about mental health, and I think that was profound. You see um, the younger royals um, uh, opening, you know, opening projects to do with mental health. You know, that national attention is certainly there. It needs to be there, the pressure on children. I think most teachers, most people in school, are really sympathetic to the idea of helping children that's why they came into the profession i think a lot are quite uncertain sometimes it's not that they don't want to be the mental health champion it's just that they're unsure um, and don't want to make matters worse that comes back to for me we map really clearly a children a child's academic profile what part of their writing they're lacking what part of their reading we need to develop is it their comprehension is it their inference and deduction is it bum 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 and those tools exist for mental health type provision and for well-being provision as i said some of them are free the more sophisticated ones do cost money, but not that much money. And for the dividends that that knowledge reaps, it's an absolute no-brainer in terms of kind of cost efficiency there. And what we've seen, um, we've certainly worked with Thrive over the last couple of years uh, and now tra Trauma-Informed Schools um, UK. By working with one of those types of bodies, um, there are other providers out there, PACE for example, um, adoption friendly schools. By working with one of those bodies, that kind of high quality training can come in. And you know what, it's perfectly doable and we should be doing it. I think also building on your point of staff have come into the teaching profession to make a difference, yeah. to help students. And you're right, they don't want to make things worse. Mm. I'm currently working my way through Lead Practitioner, yeah. um, action-based research project. And based on the need of the students, just by doing a small-scale research project, you then know what the need is in your school. Mm. And you can build a project that facilitates for your own students. But by wider reading, most teachers do spend a lot of their time researching and being those lifelong learners. There are pockets and hubs of lead practitioners mm. now in mental health and wellbeing who can facilitate and staff can tap into research ed and those networks of classroom-based practitioners who have, at the moment, mm. research evidence. Quickly, what advice would you give to leaders for effective people wellbeing? For me, I go back to the letter C. It's about having the courage to stand up and say that well-being is equitable to academic outcomes. You can only have a successful child mm. if they are a happy child yeah. and that they are thriving. So as a leader, it's being courageous and standing by and saying we are a compassionate profession. Mm. We're in this profession to be compassionate and caring and nurturing that is a definite side and students are not just numbers and percentages. We need to hold on to that and make sure that when we're making decisions in school and we're saying let's do a weekend maths catch up before the exam on the Monday morning, is that the right decision for the students well-being? Is that the right decision for the staff well-being? And actually thinking about the entire school culture, are decisions made to have happy staff? are modelling well-being because if students can see 
staff who are thriving, who have slept well, who are eating well, who are still energetic at the end of term, then students are able to look up to models of well-being. Yeah, I, I wouldn't dispute any of that and that, that sense of courage, especially when the budget is finite and there's always more library books, more iPads, etc. to be bought. I think the, the one, you know, resounding piece of advice I would offer is w once you've kind of got that courage, make certain those actions are based on kind of knowledge. So if not as a head, as a deputy, as a school leader, get folk out on either on, on those 10 day training courses through Thrive, through Tis UK, so that you've got that in-house expertise. This isn't about buying in a therapist and there you go, magic pill, it's done. It's about building a school culture and that can only happen based on staff buy-in and folk knowing what they're talking about. Get trained through Thrive or get trained through TIS, it's, uh, it's perfectly possible. That's all we've got time for. Thank you very much for, um, for coming and speaking to us about pupil wellbeing. Thank you. Absolute pleasure, thank you. You can join the conversation over on our Facebook group or on Twitter. Just search for Ambition Feed or head to our website www.ambitionfeed.org.uk for plenty more content. Thanks for listening.